It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan, who is on vacation this week, but is so dedicated to the Gamble On audience that he's taken a vacation from his vacation just to podcast. Uh, I will show my lack of dedication to the audience next week when I go on vacation and there is no new episode of Gamble On. Uh, But this week, despite John having some well-deserved time off, we are podcasting. Uh, John, aside from the podcast, you have the whole week off for the first time in four years. Uh, Have you done anything fun or are you just spending a week in couch potato mode as you recharge the batteries? Yeah, this one is pure couch potato mode. Uh, You know, it's funny when you're young and you go for day drinking and when you get to a certain age, you go day sleeping instead. (laughs) It is what it is. That's uh, the circle of life or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Yes. No alarm. Wake up whenever I want. That's very much recharging the batteries mode, as you describe it. Um, So, of course, we are one of these companies that has unlimited PTO, which stands (laughs) for paid time off which it boggles the mind at first, but um, I like this gig. So I won't even finish in the top 10 in our division, especially after spotting the field the first five months. So (laughs) I I vaguely want to know who will win the category for 2022, but Mm. even though I won't, because it's totally none of my business. Right. That would, it would go against the spirit of the unlimited yes. PTO to be keeping that careful track of the PTO. <laughs> but uh, I, I am making up for some vacations we had planned during COVID that didn't happen. So I'll definitely finish ahead of you in using my PTO. Um, now, now, in addition to uh, doing the podcast here, you did also call into a staff meeting yesterday. So, so all told, you're probably putting in about a, a half a day's work total on your week off. But I think that's okay. Four and a half days off in a week should suffice in terms of letting you unwind and recharge. Uh, whereas I expect to come back in two weeks, not the least bit recharged. Uh, my vacation next week will not be especially relaxing as we're going to LA as a family to visit my brother's family. He has two kids under five and another on the way. Oh. I'm time zone shifting, which I don't excel at. There are activities planned. And then my son and I are only out there for three and a half days before we have to take a Friday night red eye home because after we booked this trip for the only available week between school and camp, School of Rock announced the dates of his next guitar performances would be that weekend when we were going to be gone. So we changed our flights to come home two days early. So I will not be refreshed in the least two weeks from now, but I do still look forward to several days of not thinking about work. We all need that every once in a while. Yeah, I think probably uh, it should be graded on a curve if you have uh, kids under 18 or not and that uh, sort of thing. Uh, it definitely uh, is a factor. I'm not uh, I'm not uh, overly stressed on a lot of counts. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you sound, your voice, there's just something in your voice this week that's that <laughs> extra little bit chill. Uh, you're, you're always pretty chill, but you're extra chill this week. All right, I like that. <laughs> Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 196 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 195 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating and write a nice review to show your appreciation for John's dedication to the Gamble On listeners. Oh, amen. And uh, coming up a later on the show, I'll be joined by sports betting business reporter Darren Ravel, formerly of ESPN, now of Action Network, which we should note has the same parent company, 
as U.S. bets. Uh, Will asked Darren about the adjustments, both covering sports betting and becoming a sports better himself, his buying and selling digital racehorses, and how he got his foot in the door at ESPN more than 20 years ago. But first, it's been a sleepy week for me, and I don't know what it's been in the world of gambling, so <laughs> let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Our lead news story this week is a story we've considered covering a few times in the past month or so, but we haven't quite made room for it. But now he's back in the news again. So let's talk about Phil Mickelson and his gambling history. In an interview published Monday by Sports Illustrated, the superstar golfer admitted without using words like gambling problem or addiction, he did admit that he had a problem. He said, quote, My gambling got to a point of being reckless and embarrassing. I had to address it, and I've been addressing it for a number of years. Gambling has been part of my life ever since I can remember, but about a decade ago is when I would say it became reckless. It's embarrassing. I don't like that people know, end quote. Uh, But Mickelson did make sure to note his gambling wasn't, quote, a threat to me or my financial security. Uh, A few weeks ago, writer Alan Shipnuck's biography of Phil was released, and Shipnuck spoke to U.S. Bets about it and claimed in the book that Phil had gambling losses totaling $40 million from 2010 to 14. Mickelson's gambling also made news recently when announcer Gary McCord talked about betting with Phil on Phil's performance during a tournament. Uh, Some suspect that Mickelson's gambling issues, especially gambling on golf, becoming so widely publicized has been a factor in him playing in the Saudi-backed LIV Championship Series instead of PGA Tour events. John, you know a lot more about golf and about Phil Mickelson than I do. So give me your reaction to all this. Have any of these details along the way surprised you? And do you believe there's a connection here between his gambling and his relationship with the PGA Tour? I mean, I've noted before that Phil, like virtually all Southpaws on the PGA Tour, is a right-handed person pretending to be lefty. You know, uh, that said, he thinks and acts like me and other quirky left-handed right-brained people. My favorite Phil story is from one of the many times he had an errant tee shot at about 300 yards from the tee, a spectator got beamed. That led to the ball not landing in the right rough after all, but instead across in the left rough. That's how hard he hit the young guy's head with his tee shot. Hmm. Now, when he meets the young man who accidentally deflected a shot, Phil completely unironically told him, and thankfully the TV mics picked this up, kid, it's too bad your head wasn't a little softer. You could have diverted the ball right into the middle of the fairway instead. <laughs> that's uh, that's what we're dealing with as, as far as Phil goes. Uh, and as far as gambling, I've seen Phil during tournament play waiting on a tee, and someone in the crowd will ask him who he likes to win the Super Bowl, World Series, or whatever. And Phil loves gambling so much that in the middle of events, where he's trying to win a, more than a million bucks, he'll have a back and forth with fans until he's cleared to tee off. Mm-hmm. He's one of a kind, that's for sure. And also, finally, uh, the PGA Tour is very conventional and feels very unconventional. So now he believes that he should have a right to have his caddy or someone else shoot footage during a round, then release those little tidbits on social media. Maybe they go viral. Maybe he could have a premium site where he could directly get paid for it. Maybe he has a point. Now, as for why any golfer would leave the tour, and Patrick Reed, by the way, and Bryson DeChambeau are about to join Dustin Johnson, Phil, Louis Ustase, and Lee Westwood and others, uh, it isn't really about the money. I mean, obviously, they don't need the money, but they believe they're worth more than they get from the tour, and it seems like they're right. So, you know, last thing, whether Phil might be broke, he's a parallel to another favorite Phil of mine, Ivy. Now, if Ivy ever ran out of money, he could just take it off for, say, $5 million from some billionaire who knows he'll have the coolest party in the Hamptons all summer because he and his buddies get to get their clocks cleaned at the poker table all night with the famous Phil Ivy. Well, same goes for Mickelson on a golf course. Uh, so it's impossible for them to go broke, really, no matter what kind of issues they have. Yeah, that's a pretty good parallel between those two Phils. Um, now, of course, uh, you can't talk about rumors of Phil's gambling getting him in mm. trouble with the PGA Tour without talking about the rumor that David Stern forced Michael Jordan to take a sabbatical from the NBA due to gambling. I know you don't buy that one, John, and I don't either, but it is a fun conspiracy uh, theory. Yeah, or, yeah, or do I, you buy I, it a little bit? I don't rule it out. Oh, okay. All right. I thought you had said uh, back when we were discussing the last Mm. dance, I thought maybe you poo-pooed it, but perhaps I'm misremembering. Mm. Um, But, you know, Mickelson, I don't know, all all these sports organizations have embraced gambling now, as as long as you aren't gambling Mm. on your own sport. So as long as that's all in the past with Mickelson, 
I doubt the PGA would try to squeeze out one of the biggest names in golf over gambling, right? That 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 doesn't seem to add up uh, to me as 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 a reason the PGA uh, would want to limit Phil's involvement. Um, I, and you probably uh, saw just before we started recording the news that the PGA is suspending everyone who has decided to play on this LIV tour. Had you seen that before we started recording? Well, the issue is that um, you know it's it's a it's a weird distinction but the pga tour doesn't run any of the majors right so uh mm-hmm. the masters the british open aka open championship us open uh you know and pga are run by different organizations so it's conceivable that these guys can leave the tour and make a ton of money and play in all maybe not all four of the majors but at least two or three of the majors a year and that's pretty good, right? I mean, you want to see, they're definitely going to play the US Open. And so it's a tough spot for the PGA Tour. It really is. I mean, they kind of deserve some of it because of what they did. But um, these, again, these guys are, there's nobody more of a kind of a high wire act than a golfer because, you know, again, it's not well known. But when you play the PGA Tour, if you miss the cut, you get no money, zero. So you spend and you're and plus you're a contractor, right? So you, you pay your own expenses and you got nothing. And if you come in, you know, 52nd place, whatever, you get like 20 grand, which is nice work for a weekend. Right. But with their traveling party, they probably don't break even on that. So they actually have to do well to make money. And uh, here they don't have to do anything, just show up and they, they're guaranteed money. So that's why I'm not shocked this has happened, but uh, it is weird. And again, for the casual golf follower, you just show up for the majors anyway, and everybody's there. All the people you want to see are there pretty much. So it's all good. So uh, this is a weird development, but it's like the NIL in NCA right now where uh, name, image, likeness, um, where it's a revolution. But you know what? I, you know, I've been around. I remember the ABA and the USFL and the, you know, whole, whole thing, uh, WHA and hockey. Was great. I mean, it, stuff happens now and then. It, we get, we're used to the conventional until something goes haywire and then it's not conventional anymore. And guess what? Here we are. Yeah, I guess this will uh, reveal just what a golf casual I am. Not that anyone didn't know that, but that I, I didn't uh, realize that distinction about the majors not yeah, being PGA uh, events. Yeah. So yeah, they, so they, I guess the PGA really doesn't have that, that much leverage here. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, the most interesting thing to me about all of this is the question of whether Phil Mickelson has or had a gambling problem. He pretty much admits that he did, but yeah. he also insists he only lost money he could afford to lose, which is a common rationalization from someone reluctant to admit just how bad the problem was. Um, there was a story in the book about the difficulty dragging him away from the Baccarat table one night. Um, I don't know. He's, he's in a bit of a gray area as to how serious it was. Um, I'm sure it's true that he was just fine financially at all times, but there was also definitely some addiction, some need to gamble going on. Um, of course, the other the other big story with Mickelson this week is the creepy photos of him looking bug eyed and sketchy in a leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twi- Twitter had some fun with that, as, as you might expect. Yeah, like I said, Phil is uh, <laughs> he marches to his own drummer. I mean, I I, I find him fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of tour insider people who love him because he's great with the, uh, you know, just to give an example. Um, if you're at a tournament and you're like uh, a college kid, right. Who knows somebody who's a member of the country club or whatever. And uh, they might get a cup of coffee or somebody for a star player or whatever. It may be a, a Danish or whatever. Mm-hmm. And some of the players treat those kids like they're nobodies or slaves or whatever and other people are real friendly and phil is well known for actually asking so where are you going to school what are you looking to do blah 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 you know and he's also a big tipper which is why they love him most of all but um but i mean more importantly they actually get treated like a real human being so again phil is a is an odd duck but um you know i hear those stories that you know there's no quoting and you don't, I don't, I never use it in an article or anything, but, but I know what people on the tour think of him compared to other star players. And I'll, I just said one more 
uh, gratuitously, but uh, Rory McIlroy is everybody's favorite on the tour. He, you know, okay. whatever, like, you know, uh, you know, underprivileged kids locally, they're going to show up on Wednesday afternoon, you know, for practice round or he, whatever, whatever they need. Rory's there. I, I really admire him for that. Because again, that's not publicized particularly, but if you know what's going on inside the tour, you know what it is. So shout out to Rory McIlroy for that. All right. Uh, for our second story, let's check in on California, where the various interests hoping to see various forms of sports betting legalized or not legalized are making some headlines with the ads they're running. As we've discussed in the past, at least two measures are going to appear on the November ballot, one for retail sports betting at tribal casinos and racetracks, and one for online betting backed by seven operators, including FanDuel, DraftKings, and BetMGM. And the tribes have formed a group called the Coalition for Safe, Responsible Gaming. And that group has now started running ads on social media using children staring at cell phones to try to make their point. According to the ad, the online initiative would turn, quote, every cell phone, laptop, tablet, and even video game console into a gambling device, opening up online gambling to anyone, anywhere, anytime. That could lead to more addiction, financial ruin, and homelessness while exposing millions of children to online gambling, end quote. Uh, our one-time guest, John Pappas, in an interview with Sports Handle, called the ads fear-mongering. The coalition is trying to tap into people's emotions by using children, even though evidence has shown that it's near impossible for an underage gambler to start an account with a regulated site. John, in your view, are the tribes crossing a line by using kids in their ads and any updated feelings since last we talked about California as to how likely it is that some form of sports betting gets legalized this year? Well, I mean, according to me, thanks to the popularity of illegal offshore sites, every cell phone, laptop, tablet, and even video game console already is a gambling device, yep. opening up online gambling to anyone, anywhere, anytime, <laughs> that leads to addiction, financial ruin, and homelessness while exposing millions of children to online gambling. Oh, that's already there. Um, <laughs> I've spoken with elected officials once who were not aware of this uh, distinction. Right. And uh, I give them that. I mean, I can't believe this group is as ignorant, although in this case, ignorance seems more like a noble trait compared to the alternative. Um, still, the percentage of the population that is unaware of this is enormous. So, I mean, I have a family member who's a doctor at Stanford, you know, not bad when his father and their siblings were the first in the family history ever to attend college, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I doubt he or his equally intelligent wife know anything about gambling and its availability online. They, if, unless I tell them they're going to walk into the ballot booth and the uh, ballot box or whatever on, in November and say, uh, well, I don't even know what this is. So two, right. two ballot measures, by the way, of course. Right. Um, point being, a smear campaign could work anywhere, I suspect. I mean, but the sad consequence could be that not legalizing sports betting also will lead to little or no funding to assist compulsive gamblers who, newsflash, already are addicted in every state. Yep. Amen on that. Um, I guess I'm glad I don't live in California and don't have to see these ads. Uh, but then again, I do live in Pennsylvania, a state with deeply polarized gubernatorial and Senate elections ahead. So I have my own barrage of unbearable, constant political ads to brace for. Um, but look, using kids in these ads, it's low. But I get it in that it's probably their best strategy. And, and the goal is to win, to have your measure yeah, pass yeah. and the other measure fail. So you, yeah. you do what works, you know, what gets people attention and, and gets them on your side. Um, and I guess it puts the onus on the other side, on, on the digital sportsbook operators to get their message out there, which is the message that, that you just stated, John, that, you know, actually it's safer with regulation. Kids can gamble online now anyway, but it's really hard to do so on these regulated sites, uh, or at least it's near impossible to do it on your own. It's of course pretty easy to do it with parental supervision. Dad opens the account, lets the teenager have access to it. We've discussed that uh, in the past, you know, lets him uh, say, set a DFS lineup every week as I did with my son, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm getting off track, but the point is that now the online operators know what they're up against and have to go big on informing voters that A, sports betting is available already, but untaxed, and B, if it's regulated, your kids are safer. That we're, You and I are aligned that that's the message that we get, but that the great majority of the population doesn't understand, and I, it's really it's it's on these operators to communicate that clearly in order to combat the advertisements taken out by the other side. Yeah, they're up against it, though. I mean, you know, the concept there is a debate, you know, in the gaming community that uh, 
prior to PASPA being struck down by the Supreme Court in 2018, was it about 150 billion being bet on sports illegally or up to 400 billion? And there's a fair debate whether it was 150 or 400, but again, for the majority of the public, what are you talking about? The low end is 150 billion <laughs> illegally. Are you kidding me? Like right. most people don't gamble anything. They have no idea. And so I think, I think these commercials are effective and uh, I would not be shocked if uh, they win the day because uh, like I said, most, most people don't gamble. I mean, it, it, you know, when you're in the industry, you start to think otherwise, but that's just a fact. And I, I think for the casual person, they're not paying, they got a lot going on. I mean, you know, every pe- people in every state, including California, they got a lot more important things to think about. And so they're not going to follow it closely. They're not going to even hear about this. They're going to walk in that booth and say, oh, you know, what is this? And they're going to see two ballot measures, even worse, uh, arguably, and say, I don't, I don't know. This seems crazy. Let's just like call a timeout on this. Well, maybe a couple of years when things settle down, we'll, we'll try this again. So uh, I don't have a great feeling about either of these ballot questions. And I, 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 I did think both were going to pass, but I think this uh, pitch is effective enough that it might kill both measures, ironically. Yeah, I wonder, I think a lot will depend on, on how the measures are worded exactly. That's mm. that's always uh, important. Yeah. But And then there's just the question of person who walks into the ballot box knowing nothing, how many of them vote no versus how many of them decide not to vote on that measure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I initially believed based on how ballot referendums in other states have gone the past few years that these should be favorites to pass in California. But yeah, you do wonder if these two sides are going to fight so hard to cut each other off at the knees and that the public gets so sick of their ads and and all of that, that maybe, like you said, I could see both measures possibly failing, even though I think with full information, I I presume more than 50% of Californians would be inclined to vote in favor of these. Yeah, it it is uh, humbling to realize that this topic is so not on the radar of a normal person (laughs) in the general community that they just don't care either way. Right. All right. Our final story this week is another update of a story we've discussed before as DraftKings founder and CEO Jason Robbins is at it again, saying the quiet part out loud, talking about how his sports book doesn't want sharp betters. At the recent Goldman Sachs Travel and Leisure Conference, Robbins said, among other notable quotes, What we are doing is trying to get smart at eliminating the sharp action or limiting at least that we don't want as much and then making sure that we have a high parlay mix because people do like that. Robbins also commented on win rate saying, I think that as the market matures, the win rate should go up. He's referring to the win rate for operators. And he said something very eye-opening with regard to DFS, quote, in DFS, our margins got substantially higher as the market matured because we just decided to make them higher. And you can do that, end quote. Uh, I don't know about you, John, but it almost feels to me like Robbins didn't know he was speaking at a public forum with microphones and recordings and so forth. He's being honest about his goals of the betters losing and DraftKings profiting, but is that honesty something to be commended, John? Uh, And if his comments are perceived as negative, do they reflect poorly on the whole industry or just on DraftKings? I mean, I'm a sucker for honesty, even if the result makes some of the consumers feel like, well, suckers. But uh, this reminds me so much of depositions I've read and court testimony I've witnessed over the years where someone is in a bad spot. and They have to choose the lesser of two evils. You know, I had a case where some real estate executives had to admit that they, well, suckered their local politicians so they can get approvals, even though they had no intention to live up to their promises. Uh, is that awkward? Absolutely. But their lawyers explained to them that their bullshit is not a crime. The only possible crime is that they lie about it and get caught. So you just lay it out there and you wince and you take your uh, you know, PR hits. Um, here, this is not pretty either. But remember, DraftKings is not exactly winning the day in terms of their bottom line. So they need more than anything to try and convince investors and potential investors, maybe more importantly, that they'll make money someday. So in that narrow respect, I think these answers are winners. Uh, plus, few average shows even know this incident happened, partly because they don't listen to this podcast. But um, so I don't think this harms the industry much, if at all, really. 
Yeah, that last point is, is one that was on my mind that, you know, in terms of his comments reflecting poorly on everyone, mm. I don't think these comments are getting much play outside the hardcore no. sports betting community. It doesn't seem to have become a mainstream story at all. So, yeah, the casual better thinking of opening a sports betting account probably isn't aware that Jason Robbins says he's doing everything he can to make sure you lose your money to him. <laughs> um, I actually found the DFS comment the most disturbing. We were making money. We wanted to make more. So we raised the rake because we can. Uh, you know, the rest of it doesn't bo really bother me so much. But that part, uh, th then again, this is a truism with all forms of online gambling, you know, from the early days of online poker to DFS to sports betting it's easier for half decent players to make money early on. The longer it goes, the less the operator is willing to give away, the better the competition gets in the case of poker or DFS. If you want to be able to beat a game, your best chance is when that game is still pretty new. And, and, and Robbins is saying as much with regard to both sports betting and DFS at DraftKings. Yeah, I like what you said about kind of like, you know, he, he said the quiet part out loud. I mean, right. this is what it is. I mean, let's be honest. And again, the casual player, they know they're not going to win money. It's just a matter of, you know, get to the end of the year. And, you know, if you make 80 grand a year and you lost 800 for the year, that's fine. 40 right. grand a year, you've lost 400. That's probably fine. You know, and so, so on and so forth. Um, you're going to lose pretty much. And um, if you thought you had a better shot than you did, this is going to wake you up and be like, wow, like not only might I lose, but they're going to make sure that I lose and you will. But like again, it's, it's like any hobby you're going to it's going to cost you a little bit of money to indulge in something that gives you pleasure in your downtime. So, you know, maybe you have a good year and you break even. Um, we haven't done that in like two years on our, on our uh, <laughs> roll, but, but we did, we once did, we once right. did in like 2018 and 2019. And that's fun. Cause like, wow, I had all this enjoyment and it cost me nothing, but mostly it's going to cost you something. Right. And we still have some bankroll left at least to continue <laughs> playing the game with, which is, is part of the point and to, to yeah. just don't run out of money and have yeah. to, uh, redeposit and ask, or in our case, ask your uh, boss for a new fictional $10,000 <laughs> to restart your bankroll. Yeah. All right. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Over the course of nearly 200 episodes, we've had somewhere in the vicinity of 150 unique interview guests. And not that Twitter followers are the be-all, end-all measure <laughs> of a man, but... We are, now, <laughs> we are now welcoming our first guest with 2 million Twitter followers to his name. He covers the business of sports betting and a variety of related subjects for the Action Network. You heard his voice just a moment ago. He is the one and only Darren Rovell. Darren, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks for having me, guys. So we promise not to dwell too much on your move from covering sports business at ESPN to covering this combination of business betting and memorabilia for action as that move happened some three and a half years ago. But I am curious what the biggest adjustment was at the time or, or perhaps continues to be today. What, what aspect of covering sports betting have you found to be a challenge or, or perhaps something that required a steep learning curve? So I think what happened was I was going from like 30 stories a year on gambling to like 50. And then I kind of saw that with New Jersey, obviously them being the protagonist for, for what happened and the legalization. And then going in between New York and New Jersey and seeing the buses and God, all of a sudden the person who was selling sponsorship for buses and trains after 20 years of being irrelevant, all of a sudden found legal sports books. Um, but, uh, you know, so that was why I kind of pushed into it. I felt like it was kind of the next big thing. And the hardest part for me was actually the emotional part of it. How, after all these years of covering sports business in general, could I spend, you know, 80% of my time covering gambling? And the move required me to believe that there was going to be enough for me to talk about and that it would also uh, that my relevance wouldn't be sacrificed. Um, and luckily I think, uh, I, th I think my, my concerns were, were right, but I think that as sports betting got bigger and bigger, I think that what I then talked about, what I covered, um, more people wanted to know. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, something John and I often remark on is is how strange it feels to be in an actual growth sector within sports journal- journalism after decades of contraction, contraction. Sounds like that was one of the factors in you making the move that you saw this bright future for sports betting and sports betting journalism. Yeah, Ray, yeah. I mean, the just the relevance in general of that people would want to know um, details about uh, books about sports books about percentage odds about um, you know they would they would want to know where the money is and where the sharp money is and you know covering covering markets and covering you know betting in general and futures and you know uh, it's it's interesting because you know having covered gambling really in earnest probably since like 06, 07, little dabblings here and there, we had such little information at the time. And we were going from, you know, all we were getting was, was Bodog and, you know, maybe a couple other offshores for our information. And, uh, you know, you really, you really couldn't report bets that were, that were happening because you didn't never knew whether to believe them or not. Um, and so I think with the legalization, it all also opened up just so much more coverage that was that was available. Yeah, Eric, I think Darren is a good poker player because uh, I don't know if he remembers this, but back in June of 2018, Delaware actually opened uh, their sports betting about a week before New Jersey. And we we're both there. And I mentioned to him that I was about to, to join this little entity called usbets.com. And, you know, it was one of those where if you hear from a friend or, or colleague that, you know, I'm about to do this, so it's not a bad idea, right? I mean, it's at that point where you're going to, of course, you're going to you know, support it because it's already going to happen. And it was kind of obvious. But uh, Darren was very, oh, yeah, it's a growth sector. Great idea. You'll be fine, you know. Little did I know that weeks later <laughs> he would be joining the uh, the stuff, and, and was, years later we'd be together. So, John, it wasn't weeks later. Uh, okay, but, uh, it was it was it was like four months later. But I was already talking to yeah. uh, Chad Millman, who was my boss at ESPN, on 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 bringing me over. So I, I I'm I am not a good poker player, but I'm <laughs> a good, but I am a good actor. Okay, Thank but you. I want to ask you about uh, how about a, a horse racing investor? Because you told a story on WFN Radio. Uh, recently that I was intrigued by. Now, first, I was I was hearing it as you bought uh, a partial investment in a racehorse, which I thought was cool already. And then I get the feeling maybe it's not a real racehorse. Maybe it's an NFT. I don't know. So and the, the story kind of, uh, you know, we got a national audience, so very few of them would have heard the FAN uh, discussion. So how did how did the, your uh, racehorse investment so, turn out? So most of my gambling, you know, I would say like normally I have I probably have like a seventy five to one hundred thousand dollar bankroll on gambling on sports in a year. My most of my gambling is not on sports. It's on obviously like the stock market and then memorabilia mostly. Um, you know, memorabilia, kind of arbitrage and memorabilia. And in an auction house that listed something wrong, doesn't know what they have, uh, puts it too far deep in the auction, is the wrong auction house, is the, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so when crypto and NFTs came along, I had an obligation to myself to gamble on it, but kind of learn. Um, and it turned out to be a 41 day experiment. Uh, I started with, this is March of 2021. I started by analyzing what I thought would be the best NFT. And I liked the idea that Zed run horses were these digital horses that you could win money, right? There was, you, 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 you could actually get a dividend. So you didn't have to sell anything. You could win money by winning the races. You could breed the horses and make money again, uh, and uh, so I felt like this was good. So I went deep. I bought $93,000 in these digital horses. I bought the best of the best, the highest gene pool, the, you know, the big, <laughs> seriously, I mean, um, it, it was, it was very strange. And I was kind of like walking around my house for, uh, and my wife was like, are you cheating on me? And I, I, uh, I said, why? And she's like, well, because you're walking around the house, you're closing doors, you never use AirPods, you have AirPods in your ears, like something is going on, you don't want me to hear, what is it? And I'm like, oh, I bought $93,000 in digital work. <laughs> she, was, she was so angry. Um, she stayed away for like, you know, eBay, eBay taped packages show up on my house. And sometimes there's as much as 15 of them. And she's kind of gotten used to that. But this to her was, 
you know, you are, I, this is the wrong play. I do not want this for us. So I sold them for about a hundred thousand dollar profit after 41 days. NFTs were on a rise. Didn't kill me. Uh, I also got out of crypto and, and by the way, well, let me finish this story. So uh, four months later, I said, Hey, um, guess how much those horses are worth? And she says, Oh, you're going to say like a million dollars. And I said, no, 3 million. Ouch. <laughs> so, but I, I would, I would say that, um, I mean, being an investor, um, I have a mini food and beverage uh, VC that I run, but like doing the gambling, gambling on sports helped me make the, what I believe to be the right decisions in crypto. I, you don't buy the dip. No, you don't. In sports, you don't buy the dip. The best gamblers, especially for me when I live gamble, is when I give up that I lost the bet. If I keep investing, I'm going to be screwed. Those are my worst times where I just buy the dip. So like, to me, that was out. And it just, to me, it, it just didn't seem to make that much sense. So it was a 41 day period. And, uh, but it is wild, absolutely wild when you put in at least some money and you, I, I'm not a good on paper guy. I don't, I don't think it's on paper. I think it's real. And like waking up one morning and you're down $15,000. It's like, what? Like this, this would not be acceptable in any part of my life. How would it be acceptable now? It is good, though, to have those little things to hold over your wife from time to time and be able to, you know, remind her every now and then, you know, that this three million dollars uh, that, that could have been. Oh, ours, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. And especially especially <laughs> if things cashed, like when I told her that I was going into, you know, the ticket market because there was this, you know, PSA, which grades cards, all of a sudden was grading tickets. And I said, you know, this is a good gamble. The, all of a sudden, the ticket, which has been only in shoeboxes and had no place, are now going to be encased. And they're going to, you're going to be able to see the population of these things. You know, after, after I made five or six sales at like 20 to 30 X of what I bought it, they, that's the, that's the only, that's the only way they, they finally say, okay, I'll, I'll let this happen. <laughs> right. Um, so, so you did mention your sports betting bankroll. Uh, you're, you know, not a professional sports better, but you do like to make these wagers legally in your home state of New Jersey. And, and you'll sometimes post your results on social media. I'm curious, do you, do you have a, a favorite sport to bet a favorite bet type? Do you prefer straight bets or parlays in short? What is your lane as a better? I don't, well, I, I like live and okay. I don't, I don't in general, uh, I'm not sure I do well at it, but I love to bet unders. I feel like, you know, when you think about every game as live happens, they throw it into the algorithm and it becomes a greater part of what they're doing against you. I always think that you have a little better chance because the algorithm being predictive believes that people want to bet overs. I always feel like there's value every single day in unders. Um, my kids know this because um, they, they, they invariably ask the question that people ask, which is, Daddy, who are we rooting for? And I say, no goals! As few, <laughs> as few runs as possible! Um, you know, so I, I think, I, I, you know, and they know I'm betting on it. And, it, and, and one time, I don't bet against my devils, but but I, I, I have had some under goal situations where they pull the goalie and, you know, I'm basically, uh, we had a suite this year. So I was lying, you know, lying on the floor in the last 20 seconds from, you know, no, don't pull the goalie. No, you know, uh, it, it is, uh, <laughs> it's brutal, but I, I do love to bet the under, uh, people say life is too short to bet the under. I think life is too short to lose your money. So if the under is the better bet, you, you, you make that. That that adds up. I think it, betting the under is a little bit. You're you're like the guy who roots for the heels in wrestling. You're you, you know it's it's not the majority, but uh, but but there's but I'm, it's I'm, a different I'm, lane I'm, to I'm, take. Yeah, I'm a heel in myself on Twitter. You know, so <laughs> there you go. Totally, it totally fits. You know, I I like to go against the grain, even if it means pissing people off. 
Yeah, Darren, this comes to mind because I just taped a uh, Zoom interview with uh, Rutgers University uh, sports business people. So uh, uh, they might be listening on this soon. And uh, really for young people in general, uh, hopefully you haven't had to tell the story in many years, but uh, you're at Northwestern and you get the idea that uh, uh, ESPN needs a sports business writer. And apparently it should be you, which uh, A, uh, you know, can you elaborate on that? And B, is that even possible in 2022 or is that something from another era? That's a, that last part of that question is, is, is a good one. Um, so yeah, no, I, I had a sports business radio show. I felt that, uh, everyone wants to talk to athletes and they don't want to talk to you and no one's talking to business people. And, you know, you could ask Drew Rosenhaus one question and be like, that's it for the show. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, yeah. And they luckily came and I said, you know, you, it, it's very weird what you guys do. You know, you, you, if you look at your, the stack on the front page, um, you often are, are doing AP copy anytime there's a dollar sign. Why is that acceptable? You've hired Peter Gammons, you've hired Andy Katz. Why is it acceptable on business for you to, you know, and I, I think I tweaked him enough and luckily it was this guy named David Albright. And if it was an HR person, they would say, no, we're here to hire an intern. But he got me to John Walsh. Um, and, you know, and the next thing you know, at 22, I was working at ESPN. Um, and uh, man, I was working like 20 hour days. I would go from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in the office I'd go back for dinner. And then because there were always like 500 cars in the parking lot, I'm like, ah, oh, people are here anyway. I'd work from like eight to two Monday through Friday. Um, and so, yeah, no, it was, uh, it, it was, it was amazing. And I, I acted every day like someone was going to steal my job um, and that it was a privilege to get there as fast as I did. Um, as far as today, whether it would happen, I mean, Yes, th that was the beginning of the because I think previously, like it'd be like, well, where'd you work before? How many desks did you work on? Um, I think the internet, because the adults in the room didn't understand it as well, all of a sudden that flipped the hierarchy of what it meant to be. This guy's a kid, like for the first time, the kid wasn't negative. And so in 2000, a 22 year old kid, oh, he knows what he's doing. That was never the case in previous eras. So I think in one way, that was the first part of it that helped me. But I would also say that you could make the argument that today it's more of a meritocracy than ever before. I needed a media company to latch on to. Now today, if you're incredibly good at shooting something, if you have the right angle, you will be discovered. You'll be discovered more now than any other era. So I would say it's it's probably better now than it than it was before. There's a lot of competition. I think there was a lot of competition with us. We just didn't see it in front of our eyes. Yeah, but do you think I mean, I'm trying to it's been a long time, but you know, I'm trying to go back to being a 20, 21 year old. I, I, I think I did uh, apply to Sports Illustrator or something, but I knew I had no shot. I got a form letter back and I failed. But um, I, I think, you know, people that age often are afraid to even try. So I assume, you know, your uh, experience ought to at least encourage them to take a big swing. The worst yeah, they I can mean, do think, is say think no. About, think, I mean, think about the piles of, of letters and tapes that they're getting. And I say, don't turn that into a negative, turn that into a positive. I mean, I made a, I, I had an eight page laminated media guide of myself. I mean, arrogant or, or um, overconfident or whatever, maybe, but if you're not going to push your own brand, then who is? Um, so I don't think I was ever, uh, I, when, when, I was, when I was younger and I was doing these internships and I clearly wanted to do sports business, one of my managers said to me, Darren, often the best ideas are lost when they're cloaked in pomposity. And I think, I think that guy didn't get that, you know, I was just, I was just like, I was just a confident little squirt. And I was trying, you know, I was, I was trying, I was trying to have a vision and make it happen. And yeah, no, I, I, I think that the most important thing is not only to understand how you are as a content producer, but also understand what these people are looking for and how they analyze it. Because if you don't dress up the tape 
or dress up the package. That's just as important on what's in it when you're having so many people in sports who want to work for free. Obviously, to make money in sports, you have to you have to prove that you're that much more worthy. All right. Fascinating stuff. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Darren. Um, not that us plugging your Twitter account is going to make any difference in your life, but I'll do it anyway, just in case any listeners don't know where to find you. It's at Darren Ravel on Twitter. Thanks and Instagram so much. To Instagram too. I know. Oh, okay. Instagram. Sa- same handle on Instagram yes. at Darren Ravel. Okay, yes. great. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Gamble On, Darren. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Right, thanks, Darren. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And, well, all I can say is thank goodness my podcast partner <laughs> is a USFL sharp. Um, because Otherwise, we didn't do so hot last week. Uh, John had the New Orleans Breakers plus three. They covered with a 10-9 loss to the undefeated Birmingham Stallions. That won us $100. Our only other win came in game one of the NBA Finals. My bet on Grant Williams under seven and a half points. He actually scored zero points in 16 minutes. Easy win there. So that won us $50. But I lost my other game one bet on the Warriors to cover. So those two bets together combined for a $5 loss. I also lost my boxing bet in a way by decision at plus 380. He absolutely obliterated Denaire with a second round knockout, uh, not even close to a sweat for us. But thankfully, a small bet. We only lose $40. Our bigger losses came on the golf course at the Memorial Tournament. We had $100 on Matt Fitzpatrick for the top 20. He missed the cut. We had $50 on Shane Lowry, top 20. He was on pace through Saturday, but shot a 76 on Sunday. So we lost $95 for the week, putting us down $3,542. We still have $920 on hold in futures bets. That leaves us with $5,538 available to bet with this week. And you are up first, John. Yeah, I guess I'll start with my US of L sharpness, right? And uh, I'm getting right back on the New Orleans Breakers bandwagon. And the only meaningful game of the week, making a big assumption that there are any meaningful games at the US of L, (laughs) but uh, I I grant you, but if there is one, this would be it. Um, Now, the five and three Breakers can clinch the fourth and final playoff spot by knocking off the four and four Tampa Bay Bandits. If not, the Bandits will get crushed by the unbeaten Stallions in their finale, while the Breakers manhandle the hapless Houston Gamblers. And don't anybody be too impressed by my knowledge. There's only eight teams in the whole damn league, so it's not that hard. But anyway, so the Breakers won the first meeting here uh, with the Bandits in week two by a 34 to three score. Hmm. And the four teams the Bandits have beaten have a combined record of four and 32. Whoa. So, yeah, they should call them Tampa Bay Bullies, right? I think that'd be fair. <laughs> okay. But uh, now I was ready to waiver on this if I saw like a seven and a half point spread. But instead, I am only giving somehow three points with the breakers on DraftKings. Wow. So let's go 165 to win 150. Ooh, I like it. Uh, stepping it up a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am going back to the NBA Finals for, uh, for my bet. Game four coming up on Friday. And this one is for you, Darren Ravel. I'm betting uh-huh. an under. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, a, it's a player prop under. And Thank goodness I will be unable to watch the game on Friday night. I have a scheduling conflict. I'll be at live boxing. And that's a good thing because there could not possibly be a less fun bet to sweat than a Stephen Curry under. But I think it's the smart bet. Uh, He hurt his foot late in game three. He's a little hobbled. And on top of that, this Celtics defense is just nonstop. They're throwing everything at him, never making it easy for Curry. And if he's slowed down even one-tenth of a step, then I think it's going to be hard for him to get to his points over. The line is 29 and a half. There's already some juice on the under. I guess I'm not the only one thinking this way, but I did find it as a, at a mere minus 115 at points bet. I'm willing to pay that juice. $115 to win 100. Stephen Curry under 29 and a half points in game four. Yeah, so the PGA Tour is in the Toronto area this week, but they haven't used this cor- golf course since 2010. So it's too tough for me to offer confident if misguided picks. Um, I'd like to try the live tour odds on mm. play sugarhouse.com uh, in Connecticut or Ontario, but I don't live there. And uh, that event in London started before we started taping today. Yeah. So I'm not laying money down on Kevin Nod plus 900 to win, but I would have, uh, yeah. by the way, the LIV is actually the Roman number 54. 
which is how many holes they play. Hmm. Now, the kindest riff I've seen on this is that it's also a number of times that tour operator Greg Norman had to lead in tournaments heading to the back nine on Sunday and lost. <laughs> you can only imagine the rabbit hole for the other jokes. They go far, far darker and darker. So um, instead, I'm a week ahead from my U.S. Open pick. Uh, so no worries about early tee times knocking down my betting menu. Okay. I can only find bets to win so far. So I'll go modest here off the big U.S. Val bet and go 20 to win. 1,320, yes, 1,320 on Sung J M on points bet, and also 20 to win there with Matthew Fitzpatrick to win 600. So we just lost 40 units, but maybe we get a sweat on Sunday. Who knows? So Fitzpatrick won the U.S. Amateur at the same course nine years ago, and his odds are going to go down in the days before the event as people wake up to that. Uh, the course is simply known as the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts which offends my Irish sensibilities in so many ways. You know, I was a caddy at a country club in college that made uh, Bushwood from the movie Caddyshack seem possibly posh. But this one has hosted a Ryder Cup and three U.S. Opens before, so it does have some mistake. And uh, you know what? I'll watch it because I'll bet on it. All right. Uh, and to wrap up the bets here, I'm going to try to snap my boxing losing streak with a long shot bet that at least won't cost us much, sort of like your U.S. Open bets there. Uh, this is not at the show that I'm attending on Friday. This is Saturday night in New York, the small room at Madison Square Garden. The overrated, undefeated light heavyweight prospect Edgar Berlanga is in against a sturdy veteran, Romare Alexis Angulo. And this isn't a bet on Angulo so much as it's a bet against Berlanga. He's come close to losing his last couple of fights. One of these times soon, it's going to happen. Angulo is a small plus 220 underdog, but I think the better price is on Angulo to score the upset specifically by decision. I, I doubt he knocks Berlanga out, but decision, I'm seeing at plus 600. I think it's worth trying for that bigger payout. So again, risking a little to maybe win a lot. Let's see if I can reverse my boxing betting momentum with this. We'll bet $30 to win $180 on Angulo by decision. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Darren Ravel. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And before we go, a quick reminder that I will be on vacation next week, so there will be no new episode of Gamble On. Instead, we'll be back with episode 197 on June 20. Third, And I guess we need to start thinking about a big time guest for episode 200, something to ponder while I'm on vacation. Uh, for now, John, please take us out. Well, yeah, Gamble On subscribers know I'm not much of a risk taker as far as gambling goes. And given my recent podcast bets, it's probably just as well. But uh, <laughs> but like Eric, I'm ahead by hundreds of dollars in real life, mainly on the backs of silly promotions from New Jersey sports books and in this case, Pennsylvania sports books, hoping to make us their favorite. So, you know, what I had noticed until recently that was that I probably went six or seven weeks without risking a nickel. Then I liked a couple of golfers a couple of weeks ago and I picked for a segment two and one missed a cut, one finished 21st on a pair of top 20 bets and I lost 20 bucks and I was mad. I haven't bet again. Uh, there's an old line about how for a compulsive gambler, the greatest feeling in the world is winning a bet and the second greatest feeling is losing a bet because at least you feel alive. Oof. I recently talked to a young reporter getting involved in covering U.S. gambling, and I said, you have to meet up in person with recovering compulsive gamblers. It's brutal, I warned them, but you can't properly cover the industry unless you have dove down that deep. Well, the reporter had done just that and reacted in a way that told me they get it. And that's a recommendation for anyone involved in the gaming industry anywhere in the world. There are countless recovering gamblers who are courageous enough to share their often grim life stories because they are wonderful people who want to help others avoid the same fate. So with that, until next time, gamble on, but only if you can do it responsibly.